Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Uh, another day, another gigantic biography of one of the women who played such a critical part in British history, but who have been written out of it, forgotten, left out, anonymised. This time, we got one of the biggest and the best, Eleanor of Aquitaine. You know, a lot of people could talk about this great Plantagenet empire, this trans-channel empire, very exciting. Well, listen, guys, it's Eleanor of Aquitaine's empire. You know, Henry II, he ruled with his arse in the saddle and his sword in his hand. Richard I, he held it together, despite not being there very much. And then we all know what happened under King John. As Sarah Cockerell, the excellent historian who's really the greatest expert on Eleanor Aquitaine and has written a wonderful book on her, um, as she points out, this was Eleanor's empire. It basically lasted as long as Eleanor did. She brought it to Henry II. She brought it to Team Plantagenet. And when she died, her son went and lost the whole goddamn lot of it. So this podcast, among many others that I've recorded, really helped me to see the past very differently. So great, very, very thankful to Sarah Cockerell for doing that. It is a, a wonderful book she's written, uh, and I urge you to go and check it out. Uh, enjoy this pod. It's also been filmed. It's on History Hit TV. You've, I think you may have heard me mention this, but I've started the History Channel. Oh, yes. Not satisfied with podcast, a website that does millions of whatever they're called, views, uniques, uniques, man. How many uniques? Couple of uniques. For like millions, whatever. Anyway, as well as all those things, I've started a history channel. So please go and check it out. Uh, we got um, lots of good documentaries on there. Battle of the Bulge one going up soon. So please head over to historyhit.tv. Use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, and you get six weeks totally free. Totally free. Free as the air. Free as this pod. And then you pay for it when you start watching after that. And you can bin it any time. So go and, uh, go and check that out. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy Sarah Cockrell. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I mean, Eleanor Aquitaine, one of the great figures of, of European history. Well, I like to think so. Why do we keep getting these books about these gigantically important female figures from the Plantagenet period? Is it just because we're looking there and actually those gigantically important female figures exist everywhere, but we've ignored them until now? Or was there something about the this dynastic family royal milieu that was that was producing these remarkable matriarchal figures? Well, I think to some extent it's that we are looking more these days. Um, to some extent, it was a very important period, in a sense, for women, because prior to the 12th century, they had actually a huge amount more power than most people give them credit for. Within the 12th century, you then get somebody like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was a very powerful figure, and a number of other women who are holding a lot of power either during their marriages or more conventionally after their marriages. And now that we're looking and seeing rather more of those narratives, the stories are coming to the top. So take me through, um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, well, should we think of her like this, you know, mother to who, wife to who, daughter to who, or is it more important to start somewhere else with her? I get a bit fed up, as you can imagine, of mother of kings, because that is the way she's been traditionally defined. It's part of the narrative, but it's only part of the narrative. She's, she's in that position because she is a massive heiress. Uh, Nick Vincent once called her a walking title deed, and I think that's a fantastic way of describing her. She's heir to basically half of France, and it's because of that that she becomes first Queen of France and then Queen of England. But at the same time, she does exercise 
both phenomenal power um, after Henry dies, uh, but also she is a great moulder of great figures, and in particular her daughters, uh, who have not really had much airtime devoted to them thus far. Her sons were a mixed bag. Uh, so, That's so a polite way of putting it. Okay, so how did she become this great? Let's, so let's talk about her birth and, and background. Okay, um, as with so many women of this era, what we know about her birth and childhood, you could write on a postage stamp. We think she was born in 1124. Some people say 1122. We frankly don't know. She is orphaned quite young. Her mother dies when she's about six. Her father dies when she is just 13. And she is immediately snapped up as this, you know, great marital prize by the King of France for his son. Because so she brings with her what is would today be considered southwest France and, yes. and northern France. Well, n- n- she brings basically Poitou, Aquitaine and Gascony. So you're right. basically going from... Uh, just south of Anjou. All the way down. All the way down. Right. So west, a big swathe of west. Yeah, what is that not all the way across the bottom, but, you know, most of the way across the Pyrenees um, towards the east. And so the King of France says, um, yes, this will com- this will exp- expand my frontiers. Well, I mean, if you bear in mind, the King of France at this point has so little land, it's unbelievable. Uh, he's got this little bit called really the Ile de France and very little apart from that. He's, his land mass is much less than most of his major barons. What Eleanor brings is a huge, huge gain for him in strategic, uh, financial, military terms. So let's just get this right because this is something I struggle with. Was there a place called France in the 12th century? Ah, well, the kings of France would say so, but probably nobody else would. I mean, there was Paris and lands around that and some territories which were traditionally attached to the Kingdom of France. Then there were some barons who did pay allegiance to the King of France. But in the sense in which we think of it now, not really. So the Duke of Normandy, the Duke of Brittany, the Duke of Burgundy, they vaguely part of the Kingdom of France, but in practice, completely independent. Vaguely part of the Kingdom of France, paying allegiance, not quite completely independent, but very hard to control. And what um, Louis VI had spent a lot of time doing was bringing them within a degree of control of the crown. Uh, But he didn't have sufficient resources to complete the job. And then he died just about at the time that Eleanor married his son. Um, And so Eleanor bringing this land and these resources was a strategically for him vitally important step. How was how was that first marriage for Anna? Um, I think a mixed bag would be putting it politely. Um, on the good side, she was marrying somebody her own age who uh, was very nicely brought up, um, but he had been brought up to go into the church. Although he was passionately in love with her, he um, was not a very good husband in terms of giving her children, and he wasn't really interested in giving her any real power. Whether she wanted power or not at that stage, we don't know. Yes, when do we start seeing Eleanor have agency? When do you, start, when do you as the historian start to find Eleanor in these sources? She's very, very hard to find, right up until the point when she goes on crusade with Louis. Um, in terms of real agency, there is absolutely no evidence for her exercising any during her marriage to Louis VII. Um, she 
She's very young when she's married. He's got a whole court round him of churchmen and experienced politicians. All of them had been very fed up that Louis VI had married a woman who had exercised a lot of agency. They did everything they could, it seems, to sit on Eleanor with a degree of success. But she goes on crusade. But she goes on crusade. Um, That's quite could, unusual. Well, Is yes it? and no. Um, later churchmen liked to say that it was, but in fact there had been a, a real number of women who had gone on, sort of on following the First Crusade and who, who had visited the Holy Land after the First Crusade. Uh, so it wasn't that unusual. Um, admittedly, actually being with the Crusade was a big undertaking, and that's a whole other story. But Eleanor effectively had to go. Um, it was called by her uncle. I mean, not called by her uncle, but the appeal for help came from her uncle, Raymond of Antioch. So it was essentially in aid of her own family. She, at the time when the crusade happened, she had only one daughter. She'd been married now for quite some time. She needed children if she was ever to get any power. The way to get a massive blessing on the marriage and assist them to conceive would be the great thing of a pilgrimage come crusade, which would give them the church's complete blessing. It's always better on holiday. <laughs> Though, of course, one would abstain on the journey there. What? Oh, yes. Well... What's the point? Okay, so the they go on. Which crusade is this? This is the second crusade. Second crusade, uh, which is not hugely successful. An absolute catastrophe. I mean, it is such a catastrophe that both of the chroniclers who went, one with the Emperor Conrad and one with Louis, basically gave up writing about it halfway because it was so depressing. Um, it went. It went enormously badly. They took the decision to follow the route of the first crusade. And, of course, that had been a fairly uh, hair-raising experience for all those on that crusade. To the Second Crusade, it went much worse. Um, they were short of food at the best of times. They were then attacked as soon as they had got from Constantinople across. Um, they were harried by raiders. And Eleanor was actually present at a major battle called the Battle of Mount Cadmus, uh, which, I mean, we don't know exactly the numbers, but a lot of people were killed and they limped into a port called Italia, um, barefoot, starving and with insufficient money to hire ships to get themselves to Antioch. They had to leave most of the crusaders behind them. And when you say you start to see her character coming through here, in what, in what respect? So, I mean, firstly, you can see somebody who was able to survive what must have been physically an enormously demanding journey uh, and to make it through. But once she gets to Antioch, um, she's had a terrible experience. She's had an opportunity to see just what an appalling war leader her husband is. She's getting no children off him. She calls time on the marriage, which is... I wouldn't say unheard of, but it's pretty shocking thing to do. There she is, thousands of miles from home. And she sits down and says, look, I've just had it. I'm going to stay here with my uncle. You go. And this marriage is over. Um, and that I, I, is... You say that's shocking. I mean, was it even legally... Uh, is it her status as an heiress in her own right that she able to do that? Or was, what, how was she able to do that legally? Well, she... <sighs> She wasn't able to do it because Louis then abducted her and said, I'm having none of this. You're coming with me to Jerusalem. Um, but she, she tried to, to say that she could stay behind. And then they were related within the prohibited degrees. 
So they were in a good position to actually get an annulment if either of them wanted it. But she wanted to sit there and apply for the annulment without him around. Okay, so then they, they travel back, do they, separately? Well, no, he, he abducts her, takes her to Jerusalem. He then does his fabulously unsuccessful uh, bit of the crusade around Damascus. That goes badly wrong. And um, eventually they travel back to France via uh, Italy, uh, where the Pope steps in and conducts his own marriage guidance counselling, um, involving an elaborately draped bed and lots of blessings. Um, and says, no, 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 you are not to divorce. Um, I am giving this marriage my blessing. You must try again, my children. And uh, they do, and she has another child by Louis. But it's a girl. And that basically marks the end of the marriage. They had, by this stage, been been married for nearly 15 years. Only two children, useless girls. Therefore, Louis was in a position where all his barons were saying to him, you've got to get somebody who can give you a son. Did he know that would mean giving up the title of all that land? Yes. I mean, this this is one of the things, I think, that held the marriage together for so long because his main advisor said, you can't give up the land. It's only when his main advisor, Abbot, Abbot Suga, dies that um, the divorce or annulment finally goes ahead. He can't have been expecting her to dash off and marry the King of England, though. That's a nightmare. No. Of course, he wasn't the King of England at the time. Uh, he no, of was, he was. He yes, was, he was just the, the... His mother's claim. He wasn't even the recognised heir, but he was the likely yeah. candidate. Henry Plantagenet. Yes. Uh, he was the son of the Duke of Anjou. Uh, by the time Eleanor had got her divorce, he'd become the Duke of Anjou, or Count of Anjou. And uh, he, he was much younger than her. Anjou had always been a good area for Eleanor's family to marry in because they had lands which bordered on each other. So it was, it was a natural match for her. Um, but yes, it would have been a little surprising that it came so fast. It came within weeks of oh, her getting back to her lands. Is there a suggestion that they were, this was a, um, a, a romantic match or, or we don't know? There are all sorts of suggestions that it was a romantic match. I, Again, there is absolutely no evidence for that. What there is, is that Henry and his father, Geoffrey, came to court just about towards the end of Eleanor's time with Louis. They had a major row going on with Louis, and all of a sudden they back off the point that they were fighting about, which is to do with somebody who'd annoyed them and some lands in the Vexen. And... There is at least a suggestion in the way they suddenly say, no, 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 we want to be at peace with you, we'll sign the deal, that something happened. Um, so I think it is very possible that Eleanor had spoken to one of them to say, I'm going to be on the market shortly um, and maybe a marriage would be possible. But we don't know. Um, it would be sensible at least to have explored the possibilities. Sure would. So they, uh, they get married... Uh, Henry's uncle, uh, not uncle, cousin Stephen yes. is on the throne of England, having fought a civil war known as the Anarchy with Matilda, mm -hmm. who's Henry's dad, mum. Yes. So was Henry always keen to invade and establish his claim to the throne of England? Yes. Uh, his, his mother had been absolutely devoted to it. He himself had actually gone to have a crack at it when he was about 13 or something. You know, he was, he was very committed to that. And of course, Geoffrey of Anjou 
had been married to Matilda because he was supposed to be the military power who could keep her on the throne in England. So as far as they were concerned, the entire family had taken it as read that, that they would get England. Uh, so Henry was in the middle of, you know, campaigning um, when the marriage happened. And there's a there's a sort of there's no there's no major battle is there there's a sort of standoff where Stephen Henry invades and Stephen agrees that he'll make him his heir or something. Yes, um, there is an opportune death of Stephen's heir, uh, just at the point where things are going quite badly for him, and so it, you get to the point where it makes sense for him to effectively acknowledge Henry. That I think was probably assisted by the fact that Henry was now married to a woman who owned half of the landmass of France and had was never going to have a problem with resources again. Um, so the marriage to Eleanor helps Henry in terms of presenting him as a far the most amazingly credible candidate for the throne. Um, and then he makes good on it by um, you know doing enough campaigning wise and then having the opportunity to reach a truce. So is there a sense that the English nobility quite like a pa- uh, the, the more powerful the better? They, they, they actually Henry Plantagenet, if he controls half of France, you know, it might mean that he's a you know strong man and, and can actually hold you know would would be a good thing for England. Or is there a sense that surely or is there a sense of like this guy's going to swamp England now, subsume it within this big trans maritime empire? I think at the time at the time when Henry succeeded, um, it was all positive because everybody was so fed up of weakness and dissent within England because nobody was able to get the fields ploughed and the crops in because you never knew when there was going to be a battle or somebody riding in and burning down your village. Um, So at that point, the fact that Henry has got lots of resources and should be able to hold peace is seen as only a good thing. It's only as things go on that the fact that, you know, He's absent for a lot of the time because he has other places to be. He's got very strong centralising tendencies because he's got to run a major empire and he brooks no dissent. All of these things start to make people uncomfortable as time wears on. So, so but he takes the throne, uh, the king, they're now King Queen of England, and this is now an empire, this great trans-channel Plantagenet empire which stretches, well, f- well actually we should talk about Ireland perhaps, but it will eventually incorporate big chunks of lots of Ireland all the way through, almost to, well, cent- well, central France. So all of Western France, and I mean that's about- and does he spend his whole time having to sort of travel round and? So, so the way it works is that he is the enforcer who travels at enormous speed, but he has deputies um, in various places. So um, Eleanor takes her place at this point. This is where we start to see her exercising some agency. She takes her place as effectively one of his department heads. So although there is this tendency to think of them as this great love match, they spend very little time together. They spend long enough together for him to consistently get her pregnant. Plenty of, yeah, that's no problem. Um, so by the, time, by the time he's king, she's already had one son for him. Um, and then she continues to go on churning out sons and daughters. But he will then park her somewhere and say, right, you look after this bit. And it's England quite often. Okay. And then he goes off to another bit. Matilda rules another bit. And so he's effectively got the, the three of them dividing up the empire and running each of it. And whoever needs him sends for him too. 
So this, so that, so that's that. That this answers quite answer the women questions. If you have these vast empires, you can you, any family member, be they men or women, are, are very useful, important, and can control their empire. So actually, within that Plantagenet system, Matilda and Eleanor both have a a, a political role to play. Yes, they do. Though Eleanor certainly is um, supported, um, backed up. To what extent she's overridden by trusted male. Um, Angevin or Norman administrators. So we just, we just can't tell. Yeah, but we do know that Henry puts her there with these people he knows and trusts. So we know that he kind of expects her to look to his advisors for guidance. So while we see agency, it's limited agency. And she's busy having loads of children. Henry, Richard, John. Well, there's, she has William first, who dies young, then young Henry. Um, then Richard, uh, in just doing the sons, Geoffrey, John. Yeah. Um, of the daughters, there's Matilda, there's Eleanor, there's Joanna. Remarkable. Yes. Something wasn't going right with Louis, was it? Well, I mean, <laughs> there is, I have a theory about this, um, which is, just think about it. He was brought up for the church. He was told that sex was sinful and that you should only procreate four children. That really, if you really believe that and you observe that, that probably makes it quite hard. But Henry had none of these problems. And um, yes, consistently, he and Eleanor are together for very short periods of time. He almost always leaves her pregnant. And he leaves uh, the land full of castles like Dover and Newcastle and stuff. So, so, he's, so this empire, he's centralising it. He's trying to regularise things after this terrible period of civil war. And is he trying to leave... Does this huge political entity that he's created, is there a real ambition to turn this to, to again, you know, to, yeah, to make this a, a permanent dynastic, uh, you know, set of lands for his kids to inherit? Is it realistic, do you think, this trans-maritime well, state? Well, I mean, it's, it's highly controversial to what extent he thought of it as an empire. Um, Eleanor did write about, there is a charter that she wrote describing him as the ruler of the empire of the Angevins, which I think is indicative that they did think of it in those terms. Uh, but from quite an early stage, there is this question of once Eleanor starts giving him so many sons, how, how does the structure work? Do you have one son who is over the whole lot with the others paying allegiance to him? Do you have blocks of territory um, thereby splitting up the empire and giving people the opportunity to play each other off. In, in effect, it's a, a sort of rerun of the Sons of the Conqueror, um, where you've got, you know, how, how do you square the circle of somebody having Normandy, somebody having England? And is Eleanor really involved? Because obviously we think of her in the sort of tempestuous later reign of Henry and dealing with her kids. Is she really involved in trying to shape those decisions and parcel out that territory to her children? Um, she is, I think, a lot less involved than she she would have liked. Henry is not a good delegator. This is, you know, one of the things that ultimately leads to problems. She, I think, had always, when she had married Louis, there had been an arrangement that her second son would inherit her lands. Um, Henry didn't necessarily see it that way. And although from a point she had in mind and they had agreed that Richard would inherit Aquitaine. 
Henry starts playing around with that model because as far as he's concerned, it's his toy to play with and he can put people where he wants them as things suit him. And this is one of the, probably the biggest thing which leads to the problems A, with his sons and B, with Eleanor. Right, well, let's talk about those problems. Do the problems with his sons lead to problems with Eleanor? They're going hand in hand. I mean, there there is a point at which the marriage seems to have gone worse whether it is all to do with the landholding issues, whether there's an interplay with the problems with Thomas Beckett, um, it's a bit hard to pin down. Uh, but from, from 1168, about the time that young Henry is old enough to take up his role as a department head, and he's basically given England, Eleanor goes back to her lands to rule those where Henry has had terrible, terrible difficulties. And they appear not to be as close. They don't Christmas together. And it's from from that point that you start seeing Eleanor putting her charters in different words, not, um, not citing Henry in her charters as often, certainly not reco- referring to him as her beloved husband or anything of that sort. And then it's scant years until the Rebellion of the Sons. Why? We'll come to the Rebellion in a sec. Why is it that it's so hard to build enduring empires in Western Europe in this period? Like, you look, perhaps it's hard everywhere, but is it, is it the geography? Is it these, is it just the technology of castles? Is it the, 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 the local attachments of people? Like, these, you know, this Plantagenet Empire, we all talk about this giant Angevin Empire. Actually, it only lasts about two generations, right? So wh- why does, wh- why is it just, why, did, why could Henry not turn this into a big unitary state? Well, I think there's problems from within, there's problems from without. If you think about the people involved, there were there was huge resistance. I mean, it had been bad enough sort of forging counties or, or dukedoms um, f- because they were seen as too big and one person with too much power. When you then have somebody who is forcing together Gascony, Aquitaine, Poitou, Normandy, Anjou, Brittany, England... Yorkshire... Most difficult. Um, It's too much. These people don't see themselves as belonging to part of the same unit. And they see themselves as getting too little attention, too little respect being paid to their traditions. And so you have resistance building up in all the areas. And then from the outside, um, Aquitaine and so forth, having been part of France and France pushing towards being a bigger unit, you've got the natural enemy there desperate to take you down. And I guess we think, I mean, from the Pyrenees to uh, almost to the Firth of Forth, um, I mean, think how many languages, for example, there would be within yes. that space. I mean, do, almost a dozen, right? I mean, th- these, are, these are not places with great cultural, linguistic, centrifugal no. impulses. No, quite. Okay, let's talk about the revolt of the sons. Mm. Young Henry, Richard, all the lads. What, 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 how, why, why, this, I always, I I don't know anything about this period. Why do things break down so catastrophically at the end of Henry II's reign? Uh, Because he's a terrible delegator. He, he, having done so much for himself, I mean, there are all sorts of reasons why things break down. He has, um, he has got himself in this position where he's got an enormous amount of power and he is unwilling to let anybody stretch their wings and try their own power get to a position where they can help him. So uh, 
you know, having been somebody who went off and tried to invade England when he was 13, he gives his own children absolutely no chance to prove themselves. Uh, he gives them no proper lands because it's all his land. So young Henry is crowned king of England. Um, it's in, a weird arrangement, isn't it? it it's, it's the same model that they used in France. So oh. it, assured, it assured easy succession when the king died because you'd already got an anointed king. Um, and it, it sort of it traces back into the empire as well. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a copying the capes idea. But the idea was that young Henry, as the young king, should be able to rule part of the Angevin Empire. But Henry gives him no power at all. And then in moving the pieces on his chessboard as to who gets what, starts to give castles, bits of land that he has told young Henry will be his, uh, to Geoffrey or to John. And um, then he changes, tries to change the arrangements for the inheritance of Aquitaine. And Richard, who has been living in Aquitaine with Eleanor, learning the ropes and learning all the people he'll have to deal with, suddenly gets told he may not have Aquitaine. Um, and then you have all the nobles who, in the various places, feel that Henry is cutting off their power base. And does, does Eleanor have preferred sons at this point? There is no evidence for this. Uh, she works most closely with Richard. Yeah. Um, because Richard is to be the heir to Aquitaine. And having had the plans that Richard was to be the heir to Aquitaine, I think it's fair to say she is as mad as fire when Helena, when Henry says, you know, we might not have him as the heir to Aquitaine after all. But the idea that Richard was definitely emotionally her favourite, no evidence. Now, can we just quickly mention at this point William the Marshal, the person who would become yes, William please. Marshall? Because I'm here all week for William the Marshal content. I, I know his biography was completely gerrymandered by his sons, but I'm into it. Um, what, but what's the truth? Because he, he emerges around this period, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. and he is through one of... Her, tr through her, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. He is one of the nicest sources for Eleanor's life because it, it, it is as close as you're going to get to a first-hand account. So... Uh, William starts as a house knight in her household. Um, and in 1268, in 1168, when she goes into Poitou, um, that, is, that is actually when he rescues her, effectively. When somebody, when the Lusignans are trying to take her hostage, uh, he is with his uncle as part of her guard. His uncle was her official military commander. Um, his uncle is murdered in front of his eyes. He's taken prisoner with a nasty wound. But Eleanor escapes. She ransoms him, gives him a role in her household, ensures that he's promoted into young Henry's household because he's too good a man for, you know, the smaller household she's running. And then he's off and running. And he then he then gives us little vignettes of her throughout her life. Uh so, so, so that gives us a sense that she is, you know, making these so fundamental, at least staffing decisions, political decisions. Uh, talk to me. Okay, so when let's go, let's go with the revolt of the sons. What is her role? Did she support her sons against her husband, against each other? What's going on? Highly controversial question. Okay, how did uh, you write this book? It must be impossible working. Uh, yes, no, it, it is. So later stories tell us that it was all her idea, and she told her sons to revolt and that she planned it all. There is no evidence for that. 
Um, what there is evidence for is that she was very annoyed with Henry, that she enabled Richard and Geoffrey to go to Paris to Louis VII, ironically, who was in cahoots with Henry the Young King. Uh, the revolt is really Henry's original idea and he initiates it. Richard and Geoffrey then join him and Eleanor refuses to go back to Henry, um, Henry II. He, he writes her a letter saying, you can't hang out there in Poitou at the moment when everybody's up against me, it is your duty to come back. And she doesn't. And she sets off to try to join her sons in Paris and is captured. I mean, facing a rebellion from your sons in cahoots with your nemesis, who is also your wife's ex-husband. It's lovely, isn't it? I mean, it's too much. I've always, you know what? I've always been a bit of a Henry II man myself. I, I, I was until I started writing this okay, book. Okay, well, that's worrying. Okay. <laughs> okay, so she's captured. What happens to her? She goes into prison for 15 years. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, she basically practically disappears from the record for 15 years. For, for 10 years, it's almost entire. The last five years or so of her captivity, uh, for political reasons, she starts to emerge. Once, Henry, once young Henry is dead, there's an issue about land for his widow, and Eleanor needs to exercise power over those. Uh, where is she in castle? It's in England, isn't it? She's in England. She's yeah. sent to England because it's is somewhere she... where she can be safe from, um, you know, Louis trying to help her. Or And does she get moved around or is she in one place? She is largely at Salisbury, we think. She does also go to Winchester. As the conditions of her captivity loosen a bit, there's a bit more movement. Um, but she's, she's largely at major centres. Um, uh, then Henry, the young king, predeceases his father. Mm-hmm. And so she then has a more of a... More, she comes back into things. She is needed to basically exercise power over these lands so that Henry doesn't have to give them to young Henry's widow. She's still very much in his hand. She goes where he tells her. The, the odd charter that she does... It's clear from what she says that she is making this charter at the instance of the Lord King Henry, i.e. he tells her what to write and she signs. And then Richard starts kicking off against his dad again. Yes, and she's back into England, out of the way, until Henry dies. Right, exactly. So Henry II eventually dies, very long-lived Henry II, but he eventually dies with Richard in a state of rebellion against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after, when when Henry, her husband, dies, does Eleanor, is she back on the scene? When, when you say back on the scene, she is on the scene like she's never been before in her life. Um, so throughout Henry's reign, as we were saying, her agency is limited. Even in her time when she's in Poitou, she has to um, effectively do it within the constraints given to her by Henry. When Henry dies... It's the, this most hilarious thing. William Marshall is sent back to say to Eleanor, you know, you're out of prison, Richard's coming, all's going to be fine. He turns up and he finds her already free and effectively exercising power. Because the moment Henry was dead, she has said, well, you know, who's going to rule? I think you'll find it's me. And how old is she at this point? So by this point, she is 60. Amazing. And so she is already in charge. I mean, she's now been through enough kings and husbands and wars to know exactly what's going I mean it's amazing to think of this 65. woman what, what a woman she's you know this is a woman who's been on crusade 
I mean, she must have been bossing it by this point. Well, there is this real sense for me that she's lost 15 years and she's not going to waste the time that she's got left because she is actually born um, 1124. She is basically now 65. Um, And she can have thought that she had very little time left, that she'd lost most of the rest of her life. She comes out, however, with such vigour and with an agenda because Richard, nobody knew who Richard was in England. He'd spent practically none of his childhood there, none of his adult years. They called him the Poitevin, you know, He's the stranger. So she has a role to play because, ironically, both through her regencies earlier on and then through her captivity... She's actually become quite English. She's the person that the English think of as the member of the royal family who's always there. Right. And when Richard comes to be um, to his coronation, the tradition is that women shouldn't be there, but the nobility of England asked that Eleanor should be. Wow. And so she she rules... It's not a formal regency because there is no need. She simply rules as Queen of England. Um, and there, the charters are full of things, saying things like, the Queen dictated it and that settled the matter. Really? So that's fascinating. So she's almost Queen Regnant in her own Absolutely. Ne- wow. She continues to use the seal that she'd used as Queen of England. Um, and she continues to use that to her death. How interesting. And that also is convenient because it allows Richard to go gallivanting about exactly. the place. Yes. But oddly, it's a, it's a bit like um, Matilda should have been queen when Henry was. And so it's, it's a bit like the, the tradition of the mother exercising power for the son, um, as if it had gone down a generation. But certainly she exercises full power. She organises his coronation. She organises money um, raising for the crusade. And then when he goes off on crusade, she does all sorts of other stuff. And when does she die? She dies in 1204. Um, So from the period when he goes on crusade, she goes off to get his wife, Berengaria. She takes Berengaria down to Sicily to be sent off on crusade to marry Richard. She then goes back to England to basically keep England under control. Um, When Richard is taken prisoner, of course, she has to raise the ransom. She takes the ransom to Germany. She um, superintends some of the final negotiations for Richard's release. Uh, She's in the meantime, she's been having to um, actually get coastal defences up because the French were going to invade all of this. um, She then settles Richard back in his lands and retires briefly. But of course, then he dies. And there's a big issue about whether John succeeds. Or Geoffrey's son. Or or Geoffrey's son. And she had to she had to do a lot of work to ensure that John succeeded, including a massive tour of her lands, drumming up support for him. She actually goes and pays homage directly to the new French king, Philip Augustus, um, as part of a tactical device to ensure that John is recognised on her death um, and is continuing to to effectively exercise power in support of her son right up until the very, very close to her death. Did she know that John was a wrong one? Uh, I think she must have done, yes. Why did she go, why did she want John rather, was it Eustace? Who, who was Geoffrey's son? Arthur. Arthur, that's right. Why did she want John rather, because Arthur was a kid? Because Arthur was a kid, Arthur had been brought up at the French court, Arthur was not on board with, uh, he, he was outside the Angevin 
dynasty, really. He was by blood, but not by raising. And uh, he would have been he would have been a bad move as far as the plans that she'd always had with Henry were concerned. So in the end, she pre- so to, so Henry and Richard predeceased her, and then she was forced to turn to bloody John. Mm. Though she was always, one says this, it, the, the the evidence suggests she was very fond of John. Uh, John was in England quite a lot when she was a prisoner. I suspect she saw quite a lot of him when he was in Ranulph de Glanville's household. He was very clever. Um, she reconciled him to Richard twice. She went to huge efforts to ensure that he succeeded. Um, And there is a letter from her to him very late on in her life when she's been doing a tour, getting people supporting him. And there's a real affection which speaks in that letter. So um, I'm sure she knew that he was not the ideal son, but I'm pretty sure she was very fond of him. It's funny, in a way, we talk about this Angevin Plantagenet Empire that uh, between Henry II and then the Battle of Bouvines, say, uh, in the early 13th century. It strikes me talking to you that it actually, she's the one. It's, 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 it's not these blokes whose empire it is. It's actually, she's, she, her lifespan is basically the lifespan of the empire that she created. It didn't really outlive her. No, it, it didn't really outlive her by very much at all. And I think she must have seen that coming. Um, because the the alliances that she was putting together for John, he was managing to to foul up right at the end of her life. Um, I think it must be very dispiriting for her. But she did know that her daughters had done some great work in terms of um, spreading the Angevin dynasty to other places. So she would at least have had the thought. She uh, one of the last things she did was um, her daughter Leonor had a number of excellent daughters. And she had gone and collected one of them to marry to Philip Augustus's son, uh, Blanche, who would go on to be Blanche of Castile, who ruled France essentially for her son uh, for most of his reign and who became mother to, you know, St. Louis um, and Charles of Anjou. And, you know, so, yes, so, so she knew that her dynasty was flourishing via the Castilian connection, even if it was not necessarily going to flourish in John's hands. Although, you know, Edward I was... Uh, Henry III and Edward I put things back on it. Anyway, but I, I think that's an ama- amazing story. Uh, I'm just sitting here thinking how different history would have been if we could have had these queens regnant rather than these useless blokes <laughs> tearing about. Yes, wouldn't that have been nice? Amazing. Thank you very much. What's the book called? The book is called Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France and England, Mother of Empires. Very catchy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favour. Thanks.